to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation, so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 8 in the New Testament, starting with verse 16. And the last time the message was titled The Parable of the Soils. And the parable of the soils is very important because it's foundational to much of the rest of the scripture. And Jesus talks about who gets saved, why some people receive the word of God, why some people reject it, uh, the different reasons behind it. It's really, really cool because you get to learn you know, the, the things that we ask questions about. Well, why doesn't everybody just respond to God loves them, right? So Jesus kind of explains all that. Uh, today the message is titled, After Receiving the Word. And that's important too, because what happens next? You know, does God just say, here, read a bunch of stuff and see you, you know, in eternity? No, that's not the case. What's really neat is, is it's to teach and to apply, Teaching, applying, right? Learning the faith, but also living the faith. What's the sense in learning the faith, but not living the faith? Right? We're going to see this in three parts. Uh, shine it, do it, test it. Right? So we're going to jump in, in Luke chapter 8, starting with verse 16. Jesus says, No one, when he has lit a lamp, covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed but sets it on the lampstand that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. Therefore, take heed how you hear, for whoever has, to him more will be given, and whoever does not have, even what he seems to have will be taken from him. You know, some people read the culture, which is problematic, into the Scripture, and it has nothing to do with that, right? Uh, these are spiritual truths. So we look at this. The first one is to shine it, to shine the Word of God. And that's embodied in the parable of the lamp. There is a responsibility to, in some manner, I say in some manner, pass on the Word once we've heard it. Now, in a literal sense, they had these little lamps, these sort of these clay things that held oil and some sort of rudimentary wick and they would light them and they would put them out especially in a, a especially after the sun went down in a part of the room on a table so that like I said there was no electricity back then so when people came in it was illuminated the whole room the whole place uh, they would never put a lamp where they couldn't be seen Certainly also if they put it under a bed or what Jesus says under something, it would be a fire hazard in addition. But it's the same with God's word and God's truths, right? We receive and we're compelled to share the things of God. Why? Because we bless others. Because we realize how the Lord Jesus changed our lives for the better. And we want to see that with others, right? So this is the genius on the Lord's part because he created everything, including light. And uh, if you're into science and the uh, electromagnetic spectrum, the photons of light will literally go on forever unless they're hindered. And God's Word is the same thing. 
It continues to go on and on and on. It just has that much power. And Jesus makes that comparison. Pretty neat stuff. Verse 16, he says, so that those who enter may see the light. May see the light. Now, yes, physically, but also spiritually. To see the light in our lives. That's important. Can they see the light in our lives? Again, doesn't mean that we're perfect. Doesn't mean we always get it right. But is there some discernible difference than before we were saved? We would hope so, especially as time goes on. This is something that can't be contained. Now, there will be those that say, I'm trying, but it's not working. And the pitfall is when we try to do things in our own strength, right? Um, forced fruit, forced spiritual fruit is no fruit at all. You know, fruit, right? I have a vegetable garden in my house, and, and here it just happens. <laughs> it just does its thing. Um, you can do a lot of things. You can water it, etc., but the sun and the soil and the work of God is going to make it happen, right? You, you can't force that fruit to come. And right now, my, some of my tomatoes are starting to turn red, and I'm very happy about that, but there just was a bunch of green balls on uh, all of these vines, and I'm, I can't eat them. I don't eat raw tomatoes, so eventually uh, it happens. And, and that happens with us too, right? The closer we are to the Lord, it just happens. It's supposed to happen naturally and not for us to force it. But we don't hide what we've been given. Verse 18, he says, take heed how you hear. How are we hearing the word? What are we doing with it? How are we processing it? Remember the parable of the soils. There was different ways God's word would enter a person's heart or not enter a person's heart, right? Depending on the, the receptivity of that person. Again, we don't do it with passivity. The soils, uh, it's to bear spiritual fruit. He says, whoever has more will be given. Now, again, if you read the culture into the Bible, which we should never do, you know, it, everything today is about equity and, and you know, equality and all that stuff. That's not what he's talking about, right? He's talking about spiritual things. When he says, there's another principle that says faithful in the little, what happens? Faithful in the much. So what God does is he gives us some things to do. He um, gives us these truths. And how do we handle those truths? If we're faithful to handle them properly, then what happens is God will give us more, right? He'll give us more things. He'll give us a greater understanding uh, to use. And it's pretty amazing. Now, even what he has, or even what he seems to have, will be taken from him. This doesn't mean that we lose our salvation. I mean, there's sometimes I have my car keys and I can't find them, and I'm going around the kitchen, the bedrooms. What do I do with my car keys? If I just put them on the holder, everything would be great. So we can lose our car keys, we could lose a pen, we could lose a lot of things, our glasses sometimes, but we can't lose our salvation. You know, you're saved, you're saved. He is speaking about, if you remember, in the parable of the soils, the seed was given, but those treated God's word disdainfully. They took no mind to it. And if we remember the first soil, the birds of the air plucked them and took them away. Right? Another example is the religious system of the first century became very corrupt. So God took away their place. One of the biggest problems the organized religion at the time had with Jesus was Jesus naturally loved people and cared for people, didn't have the money that these other uh, systems had, 
And a lot of people were leaving the organized religious system and going to Jesus. And it made them furious because God, even what they had, because they weren't faithful with it, he started to take it away from them. Very important. I'd like to read uh, Revelation three sixteen, And Jesus speaks about the different churches, right? This is his post-ascended uh, treatise on the future of the churches. And he says to this church of Laodicea who felt they had everything. You see some ministries today, they're multi-million dollar ministries, and you think, wow, you know, they must be having an effect. Not necessarily. Well, let's read this. He says, so then, because you were lukewarm, this church, this, this structure, this type of church, okay, you're neither cold nor hot. I will spew you. That's nice, but actually the literal translation, Jesus says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, so this is the church, the organization, what they thought, I am rich. I have become wealthy and have need of nothing. Isn't that amazing? That even some in Christianity can look at worldly things and think that they're doing, the, doing well because of worldly things. Not according to the Lord. He says, you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And that's on a spiritual uh, level. Right, So even what they think they have will be taken away. So we need to be faithful. What did God give us? How do we use it faithfully to treat the things of God, the teachings of God, the precepts, the understanding, to treat it like it's a treasure and, and act on it that way. So I want to go back to verse 17. He basically says, and he said this, Jesus said this a few times in his teachings, right, in the gospel. He says, eventually, basically, everything will come to light. Today, um, there's a lot of preachers, and, and I tell you what, even big tech, when you look at Google and Facebook and a lot of these uh, big tech companies that are all kind of, even though they're separate entities, they all kind of work together, uh, you can put a truth about Christ. Jesus says, no one gets to the Father except through me. Well, you'll be fact-checked, believe me. You'll have, <laughs> you'll have these invisible, we don't know their background, degrees, education, but they're fact-checkers, you know, and they just pounce on it. You know, they'll put you in social media prison for a while, for 30 days, because they don't like what you're saying. Well, what Jesus says is at some point, I just say this, even big tech won't be able to hide God's word and his truths. That day is getting closer. We're going to see the illumination of the secrets, the dark secrets of mankind over the years come to light. There will be no secret. You can't acid wash your C drive and you know do all the things that people do to try to destroy the evidence. God knows. He knows everything that's happening. And uh, like I said, that day is getting closer. Fun stuff, huh? <laughs> so my question is, is our light being hidden? Are we hiding the light? Or are we exposing it for all to see what are we shining are we shining the true light or are we shining the false light of ourselves self-centeredness the culture worldliness warren wearsby said in his book be compassionate he said a parable starts out as a picture that everyone is familiar with but then becomes a mirror to the hearer Right? And that's why you saw the crowds. Oh, let's follow Jesus. I heard about this prophet. Oh, I hear he does miracles. Hey, you know, let's do a road trip and go see Jesus. Oh, what a cool story he's telling. And then as you get deeper into the parable, what everyone realizes is there's a mirror to themselves. 
And when we put up a mirror to ourselves, we can become very uncomfortable. I want to read to you page 88 in the same book. I was going to paraphrase it, but he says it so well, there's no reason for me to not read it. He says, so Warren Wiersbe has gone to be with the Lord, great saint, great Bible commentator. He was on the radio, I guess, at some point. He says, in one of my radio series, I emphasize the importance of doing the Word of God, putting it into practice in daily life. I warned my listeners that it is easy to think that we are spiritual because we listen to one preacher after another, take notes, mark our Bibles, but never really practice what we learn. We are only fooling ourselves. A listener wrote that my words made her angry, but then she faced up to the fact that she was indeed guilty of being an auditor and not a doer of the word. She began to listen to fewer radio preachers, to listen more carefully, and to practice what she learned. This new approach to Bible study has transformed me, she wrote. The Bible has become a new book to me, and my life has changed. Very, very powerful. We can't just shine the light, do it, test it. We can't just do it when it's convenient and it fits into our schedule. It just has to be who we are, right? Continuing on, verse 19, Then his mother and brothers came to him and could not approach him because of the crowd. And it was told to him by some who said, said to Jesus, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. So two out of three is do it and thus become Christ's true family. So the responsibility of the hearer is not to just intellectualize it. And listen, when I preach, I study, I read the Bible on my own, I also ask myself questions. I like to intellectualize a lot of things. I like to debate, I like to reason. But there's a time not to just intellectualize it, but to take it, to do it, to just do it, right? And this illustration, sometimes uh, uh, maybe Christians who have gone to a church for 10 years uh, and they never ever open the Bible, they come to a Bible-believing church and they're a little put back by Jesus' sayings. They're, they're set because they, at the church they went to, it was always topical messages. So it almost looks like Jesus is being rude to his family here. However, what Jesus did was he used the situation as an object lesson. Right? What did Jesus do? In, in every church, in every era, Jesus would, would have to come in and say, yeah, that's not how we do things in the kingdom. It's different. You do things like that here, on the earth, mankind, human families, this is the way we do things in heaven. So we see three things here. A, unlike in the world, family doesn't get special privileges. Again, that's hard for some people to hear. Uh, in some cultures, it can be ingrained more than others. The problem with that attitude, it can lead, if you take it to an extreme, it can lead to prejudice. It can also lead to make others feel inferior. Right? So, Family is good. We want all of our family to get saved. And that's a big desire in my life. And I'm going to honor my mother and father. I'm going to do these things. Uh, however, we have to treat everybody equally. And Jesus was saying, even more important are those that are in the family of God because they receive the Lord and his gift of salvation. B, Mary wasn't a perpetual virgin. So I'm probably irritating some with A and B. 
Uh, but we do know that Mary and Joseph had normal marital relationships after Jesus. Uh, we see that through the scripture. We see that we even know through uh, Bible history that two of Jesus' brothers, half-brothers, imagine growing up with Jesus. Could you imagine mom and dad saying, why can't you be like your older brother Jesus? He's such, he's such a good boy. You know? um, so yeah, there was a little friction. We see that in the Gospels too. But once he was resurrected, they all got it. And two of his half-brothers uh, actually wrote two books of the Bible that were uh, codified into sacred scripture. So pretty neat stuff. So they started out sort of in his biological family and ended up in his spiritual family. Double blessing. Uh, C, we see how easy it is to become part of God's family. Now, you know, sometimes we look around, especially in the summer, and listen, there's people in the church, there's people everywhere who come from broken homes. When I was a boy, you know, uh, that happened. My family kind of disintegrated. So I don't understand a lot of that because I didn't really have it growing up. Um, But others see, you know, family situations and they say to themselves, I don't have that. Now, I'm not saying me because the Lord's accepted me into his family. I'm good with whatever he's given me or hasn't given me. But For some of you, or some listening, you might have been hurt by those closest to you. You might be considered the proverbial black sheep of the family by some, right? No matter what you do, you you just can't seem to do it right. You can't please some, right? Um, But what does God show us here? Is that we don't have to jump through hoops to get God to love us. That's the beautiful thing. So... And again, it could be a, a relationship, a, a marital relationship. It could be any relationship where you've been burned and hurt and are carrying scars and baggage. However, when we look at God, God loves us unconditionally. Uh, he's gracious to us. He's merciful to us. He's accepted us into his family. These are all amazing things. John 14, the litmus test, Jesus said, you know, if you love me, follow my word. And then we kind of get put into that category of those that love Christ. That's pretty awesome. So God's word is very, very, very important. Very important. Would we be considered close to the Lord if loving God's word was the litmus test? Now, I always have to throw this out there as a caveat is, do we ever do anything 100%? Of course not. I don't do anything 100%. The standard is, is here. This is the standard. We, still being in sinful flesh, are going to fall short of that standard. However, this should be our goal, right? What does it take? What does it take to be close to God? What does it mean to be in the family of God? God loves me? Well, how how do I know this? You know, maybe I should read his word more. Maybe it'll encourage me more. Maybe I'll have a greater understanding of my relationship with the Lord. It's a learning curve because, you know, when you're with other human beings, right, we're both tethered to this earth, we... We're tangible to each other, but to, to be born again of the Spirit of God and actually have a relationship with the living God, that takes a little bit of understanding, right? God is spirit. We don't necessarily hear his audible voice. There's a lot of things that are different than human relationships. Nevertheless, God wants us to overcome those things because he loves us so much. He desires a, a relationship with us. And again, we don't always get it right, but this should be the standard. Verse 22 Last few verses. 
Now it happened on a certain day. And these almost seem unrelated, but you really can put them together. Right? And sometimes when you read the Gospel, it reads sort of like a biography of Jesus. There's just a lot to this. You know, we get an understanding of who our Lord and Savior is on multiple levels. That's what I love about the Bible. You know, I love the history. I love the science. I love the, the relationship uh, side of it, the spiritual side of it. It's, it's really neat. So it says, It happened on a certain day that he, Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples. And he said to them, Let us... Go over to the other side of the lake. That's important. And they launched out. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in jeopardy or in danger. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. But he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who can this be? For he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him. So three is test it. Test it. Now, test it is embodied in the reaction of the disciples during a trial. So we have a responsibility, right, as believers to hear the word and to apply it during trials. I would say that this, out of the three, is probably the most difficult. Because what happens? You know, I'm a science guy. I did very well in anatomy and physiology. You know, when something happens, you've got that fight or flight. You've got that what's called the sympathetic nervous system response. You lose some fine motor skills. You can get what's called tunnel vision. And it, you, it's sort of a primal reaction to... A tragedy, right? Fight, flight, or freeze. Those are the three things that you could do. With a parasympathetic nervous system, when you calm down, you get digestion again because digestion's really hurt during the first. Uh, you can think more clearly. You can step back. That's why the Bible tells us not to fear, to trust Him, right? To understand Him, to call upon Him, because it's just much. It's, it's a much better reaction, not only spiritually but to our bodies. So when we go through these trials, sometimes we panic, like the disciples panicked. I'm sure there was a lot more to this, but we get sort of a concise version. But let's look at this. Jesus said, let's just say this, God the Son said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake. This was a promise. But the disciples did what? They panicked. They panicked. They forgot God's word in time of trial. Now, I'll be the last person to criticize these guys because I'm not asking for a show of hands, but how many of us have done that same thing? We're going through something, you know, and someone says maybe to us, you know, just trust the Lord, you know, just take it easy. I can't take it easy. This is going on right now. It's like you get into this. That's why it's good to have friends and family that know the Lord as well, because they can help balance you when you're in the midst of that storm. And we can use that word storm in many different ways. Let's just talk about the Sea of Galilee for a minute. Let's digress. So the Sea of Galilee is actually a lake. I believe, well, I know that it's one of the lowest points on planet Earth. It's about, yeah, 70 square miles, with a great divergence between the top of the lake and the tip of the mountains that surround it, that is very important, especially if you studied meteorology. The 
Sea of Galilee at some points, depending on the evaporation rate, can be as much as, think about this, 700 feet below sea level. It's an anomaly. It's weird. And when there's storms, there's, it's sort of a microcosm of an oceanic storm. And listen, whether you drown in a pool, in a lake, or the ocean, it doesn't matter. You still drown. Right? So these things happen. Just leave it to Pastor Joe to keep it real. But what happens is you have a difference in, in height, okay? The, the air masses, there's a difference in temperature, there's a difference in pressure. So all this creates a perfect storm causing, supposed to laugh at that, uh, a situation that can be very dangerous. Now, uh, I've seen some archaeological, and what happens is when the Sea of Galilee, depending on the weather patterns, uh, starts to evaporate, you see some of these old boats that sort of surface. And archaeologists say, wow, look at that boat. That's got to be 2,000 years old. And what they do is they dig them up, and they're in museums today. So you could actually see the type of boat that Jesus, disciples, and other maybe fishermen would have used in that time period. I always say that science, history, always reinforces the Scripture. So there's a lot here. The disciples also, some of who were experienced fishermen, had to be meteorologists by default. They would have to read the conditions. They would have to read the wind patterns. They would have to read the temperature. They would have to read the cloud cover. There was a lot of things. They would, the tide, the way the, the waves were coming in and out. They knew this stuff because it was for their survival. They lived off of the, off, off of the water. And they also wanted to live a long, healthy life. So this is what they had to do. I wonder, I'm just throwing conjecture in here because I like conjecture. I wonder, did any of the disciples see some things happening on the sea? Now, I don't know this. I'm just throwing it in there. And where they were a little bit wary, but they followed the Lord anyway. Never heard anybody talk about that. I've heard, I've read, I've seen a lot of books, but I don't think anyone has ever written a book titled, follow me, when God italicized, bold, underlined, seems wrong. God's never wrong. But sometimes we, in our finite understanding, see a storm in life. We, we know that we're going through that storm. We know that there's no turning around. We can't stop it. It's just maybe the storm's coming to us. And we wonder, why would God allow me to go through this storm? I'm going to touch on that again at the end. But no matter what happened, none of them jumped out into the water that we read about or refused to get into the boat. They still went through the storm with Jesus. Now, I would say it's much better to be in a storm of life with Jesus next to you than going through life on your own in perceived, italicized, bold, underlined, perceived safety. Right? This God thing. I know better. I'm going to do it this way. Once I received the Lord, I just, listen, didn't mean I didn't backslide, didn't mean I didn't have failings in life, but I'm like, once you know Jesus, you don't want to not go through life without Him. Yeah. So I would prefer to take my chances with the Lord than go it alone. Even if you look at the, the soils, let's go back to the soils again. Right? We took two sermons to cover the parable of the soils. In three of those four soils, they, they, that those types of soils or the hearts of some people rejected the Lord. Let not, let not that be us. 
Verse 23, Mark's Gospel adds, and I love to bring Mark's Gospel in and Matthew's Gospel in because they cover different nuances from their perspective that they felt was important for their audience. You put all the chronological or all the parallel Gospels together and you, you get an incredible picture of each one of these events. So I always do that when I teach. So in Mark's Gospel, it adds that Jesus was asleep on a pillow. Wow, there's a storm coming, and Jesus is asleep on a pillow. What does that tell you? That means God the Son was not concerned at all about what was going on. The disciples were. There's actually a shirt out there. I think I might get it. It's, it reads like this. There's a shirt. It says, naps are good. Jesus took naps. Be like Jesus. Who loves naps? <laughs> well, Jesus loved them too, apparently. Uh, as God, the Son, he could change weather patterns. But as Jesus, the man, he needs to take a nap every once in a while. And you always have to ask that question twice. And that's why people get hung up on the deity of Christ. Well, he can't be because he did things as a man. Well, he was fully man and fully God. As a man, a human, there's no way anyone could have power over the, the elements, right? Over creation, but as God the Son, He did. So it's, it's kind of neat to follow Jesus. He's, he's unlike any, anyone else that's ever lived, obviously. In verse 24, Mark's Gospel, it adds that they, more than one person, they awoke Jesus and said, do you not care that we are perishing? It's amazing. Have we ever thought, have we ever said, some might say, I've never said that, Okay, have we ever thought for a moment, God, don't you care about me? Have we ever gone through a storm and I've pouted before, I've had tantrums, and then I I catch myself and say, I know that entire Bible. I am not going to manipulate God with my emotions. He's like, Joe, get a hold of yourself. But we do. We think these, or we infer it, or we say it. God doesn't care about me. That's not true. It's interesting, they said master, Jesus as their master. That's good. Don't you care about us? Not good. (laughs) So they were a mixed bag. Remember we covered this with John the Baptist, one of the most powerful figures. According to Jesus, the greatest prophet that ever lived, outside, of course, God the Son. But there was another man who Jesus did a miracle for, and he said, do you believe? And I quote, the man said, I believe, help me with my unbelief. Wow. That's kind of strange to us. That's sort of a contradiction. But can we be a contradiction at times? I know who I am. I love the Lord. I'll never leave the Lord. But this thing is taking me to task. And I'm really struggling with it. That's why we need to. And I see this all the time. That people go through a trial and they disappear. They um, isolate themselves. And that's dangerous for us. Because we need to have others who share the same faith, who have that perspective to help us out. And then we may be able to help them out a year later or 10 years later. That's how the, uh, the relationship of a church community works. Right? So don't isolate yourself. Not good for you. Verse 24, the storm ceased. Now, if you're familiar with storms and anyone... So now I'm curious, after service, if anybody has a background in meteorology, come talk to me, let me know how I did. Uh, But you know that even when a storm stops, it doesn't immediately stop. 
because there's pressure involved, there's temperature differences, and it, it, it starts to abate. It works itself out, so to speak. So there's still some wind. There's still some rain. There's still some waves thrashing against the boat. However, when Jesus did it, stopped immediately. You ever been in, in a storm and it, it, it's so loud that when it's done, your ears are ringing? It's like, you know? Could you imagine that he just stops everything? And it's so deafening quiet that their ears are still ringing because they, they remember what it was like two seconds ago. That's powerful. That's good stuff. That's why the Bible will have a phrase, uh, two words, and I'm like, no, no, no. I want to pick every phrase out of this. I don't want to miss any nugget or tidbit in this word because it's that powerful. John 21 tells us that He says, I suppose that if everything Jesus did was written in the books, that there's no library in the world that could have contained all the books. That's that's right in John's Gospel. Because Jesus did so much. Could you imagine the disciples? Oh yeah, it's another storm. (laughs) Jesus. Another person got raised from the dead. Yeah, another lame person. Yeah, look at they're running around, running track right now. Um, To them, it was like so common. But to us, it's like, tell me more. Tell me more. Uh, Good stuff here. So, Verse 25, this is powerful as we get to the end. The the onlookers, the witnesses, the people, the disciples, they said, who can this be? Now, I enjoy going into my Greek lexicon. and Well, what exactly does that mean in the Greek? Actually, it could be phrased like this, that they asked the question, what manner of man is this? Or what type of man is this? Or we know men and women can't do what he just did. What is he? So they're trying to grapple with who Jesus is. This, we've never seen this before. Never seen it before. If I saw the dead being raised, I'm 54 years old, I'd, I'd like, my mind would be on overload because I would be like, I've never seen this before. Wow, this defies the laws of physics and biology. And, but this is what they would see on a regular basis. So what manner of man is this? In Mark 4, he says, peace, be still. And everything stops. Everything stops. You know, he can do the same in our lives. How long did the storm last? Anybody know? No, I wasn't there either. Was it 15 minutes? Was it 20 minutes? Did Jesus get a few more winks before he actually got up? I don't know. Was it a minute? How long are the storms in our lives? A week, a month, a year? We going through something right now? Do we trust him with the same way that he handled his followers on that boat? Do we trust him? I'm going to say that the storm went on at least for a little while. So they went through it for a little while before he stopped it. And you know what? We might go through it for a little while. And I'm not trying to be uncaring or flippant because my life isn't perfect either. I go through them as well. And I'm not really looking forward to the next one. Um, But I know who I am in Christ. And it's not fun while you go through it. I'm sure it wasn't fun to the disciples. Maybe they thought, well, I thought this was the Messiah. We're all going to drown today. This is terrible. I knew I shouldn't have gone with him. I I could see the, the way the sky was turning. Peace be still. And sometimes we have to just ask the Lord, Lord, still my heart, because I'm 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 not feeling it right now. And we would just be honest. Do we trust him? Here's another question I'm getting back to. Why would God send us into a storm? To test our faith. For God? 
No, he knows what the results are going to be. But also to strengthen our relationship with him. It's for us to see it, right? When you, in aeronautics, I'm fascinated by how such huge, heavy pieces of metal get off the ground. Bernoulli's principle, laws of physics, pretty neat. But when they make new wings, right? Especially for commercial planes where over 100 people might be crammed into that big piece of metal and those brand new wings. They just sell it to the airline industry or do they test it? They test it, right? If you're an engineer and you're uh, building skyscrapers and everybody wants to build the next skyscraper that has more floors and you design these girders and they're supposed to be able to be strong enough to handle a certain amount of, of weight and certain amount of floors and certain amount of wind current and bend and flex and there's so much that goes on to this. Do they just give it to the construction guys? You just put these things up, let's hope for the best. No, they test them first. And you know what? Our faith has to be tested. And folks, this is, I'm just to be honest with you, this is probably the hardest portion of the journey of our lives with the Lord on this side of eternity. Because all the bad stuff doesn't happen on the other side. We're free. We got it. We made it across the finish line. So our faith has to be tested. And you know what? We get to see what our relationship with him looks like. And even if we get to the other side, I mean, could you imagine some of the disciples? And I don't know that this happens. Just conjecture. Oh, Peter, you put us up to waking him up. I trusted him. I, I shouldn't have listened to you. I don't know. What were they saying? You know, do we sometimes after we go through a trial go, <laughs> I should have known better, Lord, I'm sorry, you know. Um, we do it. We're human beings, right? But we, we need to be tested at times. Amen? Shine it, do it, test it. Being a follower of the Lord doesn't end with just reading His Word and going about our daily lives and not applying it. Because Knowing the Word or understanding the Word moves from our ears to our hearts and eventually to our hands and feet in every circumstance. A relationship with the Lord starts with what happens in our physical lives, how we handle it, and it carries us into eternity. listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org Thanks for listening and may God bless.